Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background on this episode 116 on May the 25th, 2023. My guest this week is Parker McCumber. He's a serial entrepreneur and is currently working on his doctorate of business administration with an emphasis on organizational leadership. He's a commissioned officer in the Utah National Guard and he's a Young Voices contributor who specializes in economic policy and international affairs. We talked about central bank digital currencies, the threat for the financial system and consumers uh, alike. You can listen to the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also in this episode, Meta is getting a mega fine by the European Union and also the European wine war over Irish warning labels on alcohol bottles is continuing. So let's get started. First off, we have the Irish warning labels on alcohol. Um, And so we talked about this in the podcast before. I also talked about it with my colleagues on Consumer Choice Radio. Drinking alcohol causes liver cancer. That is the truth that campaigners, health advocates and the Irish government are trying to get out with a law that will uh, get into effect uh, in 2026. May 2026 is going to be the date when all of those alcohol bottles will have to be labeled um, with uh, with that warning uh, sign. Also, there will be uh, the, the the sign of you shouldn't drink alcohol while uh, you're pregnant. And also there is a direct link, quote, this is what's going to be on the label, there is a direct link between alcohol and fatal cancers, plus a website that will inform about those risks. Health advocates have been arguing for this rule for a long time, and now it's uh, with Ireland, they will be the first EU member state to actually put this into practice. But of course, not everyone's happy. And Sky News had somebody uh, who expressed their opposition in the very Italian way. But it's more than just a commodity. Here in Valpalicella, wine is intrinsically heritage, culture and a way of life. That's why Ireland's plan to slap cancer warnings on their product has caused such shock. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's over, over the limits. It's over the limits. Under Ireland's pioneering legislation, all alcohol products, not just wine, will have labels like these, warning of liver disease and the link to fatal cancers. We know that we have the longevity after the Japanese is the the area with the the maximum of longevity. Why that? Because of the cancer, they come from the alcohol, come on. It's a crazy is definitely also what not just Italy, but also France and Spain are saying the big wine producers are very much against this. Putting health warnings on all alcoholic beverage containers was the final part of Ireland's landmark Public Health Alcohol Act 2018, writes Politico, which aims to reduce alcohol abuse and the burden this imposes on hospitals. The plan left the booze industry up in arms and sparked a backlash in Brussels, where nine member countries have filed objections. So a couple of countries there uh, against uh, against the new rules. Ultimately, um, this seems to be a classic example of a, a common market disruption where it's one product being unfairly treated uh, versus another um, when it comes to when it comes to the internal market. The rules of the European Union's internal market are so that um, we do have free trade, but we also need to have fair competition. Of course, Ireland is not a wine producer. The climate doesn't really allow that. And as a result of that, 
it is unfair for uh, Ireland's um, uh, alcohol rules to unfairly discriminate against wine, which are made usually in other EU member states. Um, in Politico, it also says that in a letter to EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, Public health advocates have called for the Commission to follow Ireland's lead and move on with its proposal for an EU-wide labelling regime. They say, quote, Our fear is that the data-gathering exercise as part of preparation for the proposal, including the impact assessment, is unduly influenced by commercial operators. We are very concerned that this important legislation will not see the light of day before the end of the current mandate, said the coalition's letter, which also pushed for an on-label health information rather than the off-label digital alternative, which is preferred by industry. Um, the, uh, there seems to be sort of the implication here that, of course, only the industry um, is the one opposing these rules. But, of course, uh, informed consumers don't want to be patronized by uh, these uh, health labels. And ultimately, the information that alcohol is not good for you has been out there for a while. So the question is here, uh, to what extent uh, do we uh, patronize the consumers and overlabel? And this is something I talked about in the previous episodes. When you overlabel, eventually you make consumers relativize the importance of these those things. Of course, you should consume alcohol in moderation. But of course, that shouldn't ruin the design uh, of those bottles. Uh, we don't want to live in a society in which everything has to be uh, labeled. Uh, sweets should look nice. Uh, if you want to buy cereal, that should have a cartoon character on it. Whatever the producers choose and whatever the consumers want, that should be the bottom line. I remember when CCC started, we did actually a store, a no nanny store in which everything was plain packaged. Um, this was uh, this is quite a few years ago. It was back in the UK, um, and uh, unfortunately, it seems that increasingly examples that we gave that were considered somewhat hyperbolic are increasingly becoming a reality. Next up, Meta, which is the uh, company that owns Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram, is hit with a giant fine by the European Commission. Uh, Canada's CBC has the news. The European Union has hit tech giant Meta with a record-breaking fine of over a billion dollars for defying privacy rules. Albert Delatella is now here with the details about the fine and all of the rest of it. Albert, what do we know? Well, it's a massive fine, Natalie, resulting from Meta's handling of user information. Meta is, of course, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. The company is now facing a fine of 1.2 billion euros or about 1.75 billion Canadian dollars, courtesy of the lead privacy regulator in the EU. The fine surpasses Amazon's 746 million euro fine in 2021 for data protection violations. It also has it also has five months to stop transferring users' data to the U.S. Meta says it will appeal the ruling and what it calls an unjustified and unnecessary fine. It said in a statement that the ability for data to be transferred across borders is fundamental to how how the global open internet works. It said the free flow of data supports many of the services people have come to rely on. Well, Albert, we know the legal battle on where Meta stores its data has been going on 
for quite some time, for years really. Tell us about that. It has for about a decade, in fact, um, starting with when an Austrian privacy activist brought a legal challenge over uh, because of uh, uh, what was seen as a risk of U.S. snooping. It was related to revelations from former U.S. National mm -hmm. Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden that Facebook gave U.S. agencies access to the personal data of Europeans. A deal covering EU-U.S. data transfers known as the Privacy Shield was struck down in 2020 by the EU's top court over concerns it didn't do enough to protect residents from the U.S., from the U.S. government's alleged uh, elect electronic prying. So Meta now has six months from the receipt of the decision to stop transferring and processing the data of EU residents in the United States, meaning the data will either have to be deleted or moved back to Europe, writes Euractive. The decision is based on the Schrems II ruling of the EU Court of Justice, which found that the U.S. legal regime does not provide adequate data protection by EU standards due to the disproportionate and unchallengeable access of intelligence services. The Consumer Choice Center's own Deputy Director Yal Osowski reacted in a press statement in which he says, This retaliatory fine imposed by the EU in the midst of a privacy shield negotiations with the US reveals the bloc is more interested in shaking down tech firms who deliver value to their users, all the while providing no clear direction for global companies that already have millions of European users. Yal also says, quote, a good faith effort to work with US officials on a privacy deal who are constrained by their own institutions and laws would have yielded a much better result for consumers on either side of the Atlantic. Instead, the EU is using ex post facto policing power that will likely diminish the online tech experience for European users and initiate a chilling in tech innovation on the continent. Once again, it seems the EU is responding to the changing face of innovation with bureaucratic committees and fines rather than responsible and clear rules that anyone could follow. We're not really making Europe fit for the digital age with a lot of these rules. And this goes from everything from the tech fines to EU digital taxation, um, which is still on the agenda and some EU member states already have. We are keen to target the American tech companies. And some of the concerns that are expressed here by the intelligence agencies uh, are not really new. One wonders also to what extent uh, EU member states are held to the same uh, to the same standard here, uh, because if there was an uh, EU-based social media platform, uh, do we know exactly to what extent everyone from Portugal to Lithuania, and including especially our more problematic member states such as Romania, Bulgaria, uh, or Hungary, are actually respecting the rules on the treatment of that data? So I think we're not necessarily fairly applying the measures here. Um, and uh, negotiations are ongoing on what exactly the privacy rules should be. So slapping that fine on that is once again a European Commission that wants to create the outrage. Uh, there will be more court uh, uh, discussions. There will be more uh, lawsuits over this and it will continue for many years. Um, those fines are, are, are symbolic executive uh, action and uh, increasingly reminds us of sort of the, the political dynamics that we also see in the US in which the executive tries to uh, make the rules up as they go. And very often it's a very costly experience um, for the European Union because those court, um, those court procedures, they are not cheap. So we'll see how that develops. Um, I, uh, I always think it's very interesting to talk about uh, how the commission uh, 
tries to cut out the cumbersome uh, yet important process uh, of, of making new laws by just trying to impose fines and just seeing how it goes. And it's kind of a 50-50 deal, whether it's uh, Fiat's taxation or Apple's uh, um, registration rules in Ireland. Um, the commission just sort of tries it and, and, then, and then we find out in the courts whether it's uh, appropriate or not. Um, and even that is, uh, is somewhat biased towards the integrity of the, of the European institutions. So yeah, a big fine, 1.2 billion euros. We'll dedicate a, um, a, a longer section of the, of the podcast episode at one point on this issue. But now let's move to the interview of the week. My guest this week is Parker McCumber. He's a serial entrepreneur and is currently working on his doctorate of business administration with an emphasis on organizational leadership. And he's also a contributor at Young Voices, who specializes in economic policy and international affairs. And we talked about central bank digital currencies, um, CBDCs. He had an article in the American Thinker and I wanted to discuss it. Uh, so, yeah, take it away. All right, Parker. So let's talk about CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies. You wrote an article in the American Thinker in which you say a centralized bank digital currency would harm our economy. So for the listeners who previously might have heard about CBDCs and some of them who haven't, briefly explain what CBDCs are all about and then let's get into why you think they're a threat. Sure. So a central bank digital currency is uh, similar to a cryptocurrency that we currently have. You think Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, however, it's controlled and operated by central banks of nations. Uh, and I think this is kind of a threat to the economy of anyone who implements a CBDC because it's going to inherently undermine the current banking, lending and funding systems that allow a flow of credit in your economy. Okay, and so you get into some of that in the article. Give us a TLDR on how it actually does that. How, how, would, how would it undermine the existing banking system if the CBDC is ultimately issued by a central bank? Wouldn't the central bank have all the controls in place for that not to happen? So here's an example from the United States over the last couple months. Uh, we saw a handful of bank scares and bank runs caused by bank failures. Uh, I think Signature Bank um, and SV Bank. And, and the issue that a CBDC could exacerbate, uh, strictly speaking for banking, is that when you have a bank scare or a bank that's on the commercial side that's failing, the CBDC provides an instant and immediate transfer of your wealth from those commercial banks to the central bank. So you exacerbate the problem of a bank failure and you see all these commercial banks rapidly closing or going under. Um, and then it's a consolidation of power really through finance. So that's the, the first thing that kind of is concerning to me when you talk about a, a central bank digital currency. The second thing uh, is that with a central bank digital currency, they are a, there's a centralization of wealth uh, that the federal government essentially is able to control because they control the central bank. Uh, and, and this is concerning for individuals because it means that they have the potential, the power to track your spending history. They have the, you know, you think bank transactions, they keep a list of, of how you're spending your money. Uh, it would also require you to provide personal information to set up those accounts or those digital wallets. Uh, so the federal government is collecting all of that data on the individual. And then they also have the potential to 
control financial spend. Uh, so if you think you're potentially a, a government could create a new law or something that says, uh, you know, drinking alcohol is a problem in our country. Uh, we're going to limit the amount of alcohol that can be purchased. And, you know, maybe all of a sudden you're only allowed to spend $100 a week at a liquor store or something like that. Uh, so it, there's the potential for them to kind of curtail your ability to even use your money at that point. Now, some of the some of the arguments against some of the points you've made are that you know it's a slippery slope, and ultimately this is just about the practicality. This is this is a very useful tool. This will get us to the new age of finance. Uh, this is this is something very useful, um, and you know you can trust your government to do the right thing here. Um, why are you so skeptical? Is it because the United States government is particularly good at you know uh, uh, disregarding people's privacy, or you know? How, how do you think we would get to that point? Would, would this happen instantly? Is this ultimately the design or do you think this will happen um, um, without necessarily the, inten the intention being there now to, to implement such a system? Uh, so I would assume that there is the intent to consolidate power and then be able to leverage it. And the reason that I have that assumption is that a central bank digital currency is nothing new. We already have digital solutions that are going to address and provide the answers that a CBDC is supposed to address and provide. Uh, for example, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, all these, these digital currencies that currently exist, they already offer faster transactions. They already offer safer transactions. Uh, and they're decentralized, so you're not giving up information, giving up your data in the form, data is a form of power to the federal government that then uh, can control and manipulate that or leverage it against uh, policy to kind of enact or enforce their will. Well, you talk about the similarities with existing cryptocurrencies. Of course, um, there are existing fees that people do pay when using Bitcoin and Ethereum. I would assume that some consumers will, you know, would be incentivized to do the switch to a CBDC because, well, I know Americans pay a significant amount of money for wire transfers. It's quite expensive to send money from A to B. In Europe, we have a we have a system that allows us to do instant transfers, and usually your bank charges you uh, very little and or or gives you a free uh, amount uh, per per month. Uh, so, do you think that Americans will ultimately be swayed by the convenience and maybe disregard some of the downsides that you're bringing up? Potentially, but I don't know if that's really something that's going to be a, a large scale. Uh, for example, dissuasion, like you said, uh, CBDCs do offer, or at least the central bank kind of has stated that they're going to be a very low cost solution. Uh, I argue that it's probably not low cost. It's just coming out of taxpayer dollars. So the fees are still going to be there. They're still going to exist. It's just being subsidized by the taxes that you're already paying. And when it comes to the, the, the privacy um, argument, um, do you... There's, there's, there's been for a very long time uh, discussions about collection of, of data. This is started in the United States. Um, it's, it's extended to Europe to, 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 to an extent uh, as well, uh, usually for security reasons. And these are, you know, there's specific rules in place, what you can do, what uh, secret service agencies and all these surveillance agencies can actually do. This is supposed to uh, be a security aspect when it comes to terrorism and, and, and all of these aspects as well. One of the criticisms that we've had in Europe as well when it comes to uh, the, the cryptocurrencies that you mentioned, Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, and so on, is that there's a, there's, a, there's a lack of accountability and that you know, some entities, for instance, are able to circumvent 
sanctions. Uh, this is in the case of, of the war in, in, in Ukraine. It's one of the arguments that, you know, those cryptocurrencies, they don't have the necessary transparency that we need to avoid those bad actors. Um, how do you feel about that whole conversation about to what extent do we afford uh, privacy to, to consumers? And to the other extent, what is necessary in, in, in a government to be able to, you know, surveil some of the transactions that go on? This is a big debate. Where do you stand? So personally, I'm always going to side on the rights of an individual and their privacy and their financial freedom. I, in the United States, we have the notion of innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and you've seen some legislation in the past, uh, think like the Patriot Act, uh, that really kind of usurps that innocence or supposition of innocence uh, and is going to spy and collect data and, and kind of try to protect people from those evils or the circumventing policy. Uh, but I would argue that the vast majority of individuals are not involved in those kind of illegal or illicit things that they shouldn't be involved in. Uh, and I want to give people the benefit of the doubts to choose uh, to, to obey the law and kind of uh, be an upright and outstanding citizen. So I think that it's, it's probably not a good policy. I kind of view it as inherently authoritarian if you're going to usurp that power uh, and take away the, the presumption of innocence uh, just because you want to prevent crime from taking place. And arguably a large part of the um, illicit transactions happen still in good old cash. And that brings me to another point, uh, which is what is the place of, what is the, what is the standing of cash in the future? In Europe, we have a, a large amount uh, of, of member states and they all have different rules when it comes to, when it comes to the use of cash. I, I would say that a country like Germany and Austria, those countries are probably responsible for blocking a lot of the new rules on restricting the use of cash. What does it look like in the United States? What are and I know that Americans, you know, are very heavy users of credit cards. Uh, taking out cash money can sometimes be, uh, uh, you know, can sometimes entail quite a lot of fees. A lot of Americans never seem to be really using cash. Is that where this is going? Are, are consumers already ditching cash for more convenient solutions that give them cash bags and points for hotels? And are we losing sort of that sense of the, the value of cash? Is that going away necessarily, maybe even without any government intervention? Uh, so I, I kind of agree with you on that. I think that we are moving away from cash as a society, and we have been for quite some time, uh, largely due to the transaction speed and convenience of credit cards and debit cards. Um, so personally, I, I also am in line with that, I use a credit card a lot. Uh, the issue that I think we prevent with our current system is that those credit cards are being issued by third parties. It's not coming from the government. Uh, so there's still a buffer between you and your personal financials and the central bank being able to collect that data or freeze your assets. Um, currently, if you're in the United States and, and you have uh, potentially you're being suspected of a crime or, or using your um, money for some kind of illegal purpose, you have to go through a, a judge, you need to get a warrant, you need to, to get a, a court order essentially to freeze those assets. Uh, and without the third party that that's going through, and you're looking at a central bank, that's a, almost an immediate, you know, capability for the government to have. Uh, so 
I prefer having that third party for personal security, for personal privacy, uh, as well as you do get some of those maybe perks, like you said, the cash back, the points, the rewards points. Um, they want to incentivize people because those are private businesses. Uh, they're on on the market and they, they want to incentivize people to use their product and their service. Uh, so you get more out of it. If you move over to a central bank digital currency and that's quickly uh, going to become a, a large ordeal when it happens, if it happens, uh, there's no incentive for them to give you any benefit at that point um, because they know that they're going to beat the retail market for finance. Uh, so if if the federal government takes control of a CBDC and, for example, they can exacerbate the problem of bank closures uh, and they can facilitate instant transfers from banks into the CBDC. Uh, you're looking at uh, essentially a monopoly on credit and finance that could happen very quickly. Well, how quickly can it then actually happen? Because you mentioned that there are people who think about the development of a CBDC in the US. We have a similar situation in Europe with the European Central Bank. There's a lot of thinking and committees and people having different thoughts about it. In terms of the chronology of where we are, how likely do you think this is to actually happen in the next five years? Maybe is the government waiting for a specific crisis that it will use in order to implement this? Or is this sort of a transition where you say um, it will happen rather soon? Uh, so I think you're probably spot on when you mention a crisis, uh, right? When there's uh, hardships, hard times, that's an easy opportunity for an organization or the government to kind of collect power quickly. Uh, so I think, you know, as you, you look forward, a lot of big names in finance, a lot of analysts are predicting that there's going to be uh, pretty much a global recession, you know, that's impending and will last for a few years. I would view that as an opportunity for the central banks to roll out a digital currency because the proponents of a central bank are touting that uh, the CBDCs would increase efficiency and allow the government to have a more uh, direct and efficient control on finance. And they would argue, I'm sure, that having that power and capability would allow them to navigate us out of the recession so they could leverage that to get buy into the CBDC. Uh, as far as the timeline that would take to, to implement, uh, it's actually kind of scary to me. I think that that infrastructure is probably already there and already in existence. I mean, when you think about uh, the probably hundreds of thousands of digital currencies at this point that exist, um, the technology is out there, the code is out there, the algorithms are out there, all that stuff that's gonna be necessary to put these things in place. Um, and really at this point, it's just a matter of implementation. Uh, and when you see how quickly some different cryptocurrencies can pop up um, from conceptualization to functionality, I would argue that it's probably not a very long process at all. I mean, maybe a couple months. Well, that is very scary uh, to me as a thought. Uh, we have, we're getting to the end of it. And I wanted to just um, ask you this about sort of the political reactions to it, because um, while it may not necessarily necessitate legislation to be implemented in order to exist, it may very well have legislation uh, to be stopped. And sort of where are the political fault lines on this? In Europe, we see 
Um, when there is pushback and conversation, there's very little in the European Parliament on this issue. It's usually from the right. Uh, what does it look like in the US? Is there is there bipartisan opposition to some of these suggestions? Or what does it look like? So for the most part, I would argue that it's split pretty much down party lines comparably to the EU. Uh, the conservative side, uh, some of those libertarian kind of thinkers, uh, very much oppose this. And there is legislation that's been introduced to prevent this. Uh, however, you do have probably half of legislators that believe this is an efficient step. It's a step in maximizing uh, finance for everyone. Um, one of the uh, quotes I shared in the article I wrote for the American Thinker on this uh, was by Congressman Tom Emer, uh, who essentially said that a central bank digital currency, while it might increase the federal control over money and allow them to gain insight uh, to your data and spending, it will deprive users of, of their privacy. And so he's opposing it on the privacy front. And I don't see a lot of of lawmakers oppose it due to the economic uh, issues that would rise, uh, but it is split very harshly on that privacy issue. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. Uh, it, it appears to me that a lot of the developments in the US might also inform what happens in Europe or vice versa. Uh, we have a tendency on both sides of the Atlantic of picking off of each other on bad ideas. So hopefully it won't get won't get that far. Parker, thank you so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Parker McCumber on Twitter at Parker underscore McCumber. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. The article in The American Thinker will also be in the description of this episode. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, and I'll see you Thursday. Yeah.